It's okay to fail. Fail forward. Retakes and redos. In education, we hear this all the time. Students grow through failure. Students learn by failing. But do students know how to fail? Do we do a good job of helping kids understand the difference between failure and grades? Maybe instead of failure, we should start with courage and vulnerability. Students who learn to be vulnerable understand failure as part of the process. Reflection can help students find the courage to overcome failure. For this episode of Teachers as Leaders, I'm joined by one of my favorite teacher leaders, Deb Lawler, as co-host. Deb has been teaching health and physical education for 24 years. We'll talk about her experience teaching vulnerability to her students. In the second segment of this podcast, Deb and I will together interview Alicia Duell, who is the ISTE 2019 keynote speaker. She spoke about her failure in losing a job that she had dreamed of her entire career and how she turned that failure into success. She does have a TED Talk that goes along with this that is posted in the show notes. So enjoy. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Teachers as Leaders. Welcome to the Teachers as Leaders podcast, where we'll explore how teachers take on leadership roles in schools. I'm Todd Bedard, and throughout this season, we'll interview teacher leaders, discuss building culture, and promoting student learning in schools. Hope you enjoy the episode. So here we are on Teachers as Leaders podcast. Co-hosting with me this week is Deb Lawler. She is one of my favorite educators and favorite humans for that matter. I've gotten the chance to work with her in our Phys Ed Association here in Pennsylvania. And before we continue on, I'm going to let Deb introduce herself and tell you a little bit about herself. And uh, hopefully, I'm sure from her introduction, you'll get to understand why I think she's a wonderful person and an educator. Thanks, Todd. I appreciate you too. I appreciate that so much. Uh, Deb Lawler. I am a department chair K-12 at Lower Moreland Township School District. I have been in this position for about 18 years and I have been teaching at Lower Moreland uh, for a little over 20 years. Um, I did have some teaching experience prior to that. I, on my afternoons, enjoy to fill my time with coaching. I've been on the sidelines coaching uh, phenomenal young ladies, uh, I guess 26 years now in both hockey and lacrosse and I enjoy that immensely. My husband John allows me to do this coaching coaching and I appreciate him. And I have two boys, Kyle and Nicholas, who are both college graduates and uh, looking for the real world experience. Nice. Well, I'm sure your boys with you two as parents are headed for success in life and I can't wait to hear what they end up doing with themselves as we progress through this life. Oh, great. Thank you. So, We want to talk a little bit about empathy and failure, and we're looking at the work of Brene Brown. We talk about vulnerability, and and one of the reasons that I thought you needed to co-host this episode with me as we talk to Alicia Duell later on in the episode is what you do with your classes in health class. I know you're a health educator, but we're all educators at the core. Health is just what we teach, and phys ed is just what we teach. And you shared something with me that you do at the beginning where you kind of go through what being vulnerable is and what having empathy is. And, and, And at the end of your presentation that I read over, you talked about scarcity culture, which you define as as the never enough culture, never good enough, never safe enough. Can you talk a little bit about what led you to even uh, starting with that other than maybe reading Brene's book, Daring Greatly, or whichever one you started with? Because I know there's seven of them and she she talks about vulnerability in all of them. So can you talk a little bit about the scarcity culture that you saw and what, what led you to this? 
Uh, actually, it's a really good question. This past summer, I um, enjoy spending my time preparing for the upcoming school year. And in doing so, I was speaking to Dave Schmidt, a friend of both of ours, and he had said, Debbie, you have to read this Brene Brown book. So I, of course, I went right on Amazon and, and I had ordered the book and jumped right into it. And it really gave me a great starting point for my health classes. I've always wondered how I could create an environment where the students could come in and be comfortable. Uh, obviously, some topics that we cover in health class, you're really going to need to have students really listen. Um, so we talk about what a good listener looks like. We certainly define empathy versus sympathy. And really, we want to create that culture where people are empathetic and don't show sympathy. And with that, where Brene Brown uh, led me most is, you know, really teaching about vulnerability and putting ourselves out there and then for others to listen with empathy and have that culture in your classroom. So I really took that as I need to master that first and then create that environment. So then moving forward, once we start talking about our topics, that I think it would have been an environment where the kids could feel at ease and more comfortable with each other. Yeah, I know we could probably spend an entire series of episodes on the work of Brene Brown and, and digging into what she's about and all of the things that she does. I love what you're saying about looking at those kids and, and trying to understand vulnerability and, and sympathy and empathy. Are you noticing, do you think that the social media culture or with the cell phones, you know, everybody's got a cell phone from pretty much fourth grade on. Do you feel like that is, we're creating kids that are armoring up as, as Brene likes to call it. She talks about putting on your armor and heading out into the world. Do you see that kids are coming to you with more armor on than they used to, or is it the same? It's just different armor. Uh, another really great question. I think as youngsters, the word armor, meaning that you're hiding behind something for protection, has always been in the world of being a student or being someone that's going through adolescence. However, I think it's brought out more with social media. So the underlying is always there. But I, I truly believe exactly what you said, Todd, that the social media is bringing that to light. And now you become, I'm not good enough because there's a lot of comparing and the filters that might make people seem that they have less imperfections, where in reality, and that is also an armor. So I think our kids are really juggling with how they need to feel and be who they are because of the social media aspect. So yes, I definitely see it's increasing, but I always believe that adolescents have had to wear armor. And that's the learning curve, really telling people to take that armor off, be who you are. And then it doesn't stop there because that's the easy lesson. The hard lesson is to then tell the people left and right of them that allow them to be who they are. And this is the accepting piece. And we don't have to love all everyone, but you need to tolerate and accept and um, be empathetic. So I think that's the part that as educators, we might not talk about. So we ask people to be vulnerable, but then there's no support for it. And then there's no more trial and error with vulnerability because it didn't maybe work the first time. Yeah. And I think too, from a health education standpoint, I mean, we've been talking about it for years. I mean, I remember when I first started teaching in the pre-social media era, pull magazine covers in and, and, and especially with young girls, I think that's probably where vulnerability may have started in terms of, of looking at it. We would look at these magazine covers and say, oh, well, they edited this and, and they made her a size zero with Photoshop and they made her look like this with makeup. And, and girls felt like there was this standard that they had to live up to. And now we have today, I, the joke running around Reddit is, 
is is visco girls and there's these things you have to do to be a visco girl and and it makes me wonder sometimes are girls having uh, are there more pressures on young girls and young women i mean as a woman yourself growing up do you feel like there's more pressure on women or is it just talked about more i think in today's world we're really trying to make sure that we think about everybody as a whole and we're all going through our own trials and tribulations i wouldn't say that it would be specified and i really try to engage the students in that exact concept. Everyone's on social media. Everyone has their own armor or their feeling of living in the scarcity culture of not being enough. So I think in my education, although I definitely hear what you're saying, Todd, and I think many times we're drawn to that, that there's across the board with how students feel today. And we open up that lesson so everyone feels valued and understood that we really need to get rid of some of that armor that we're carrying with the support of folks around us. And I do believe as health educators, that's one of the areas where maybe we should start our grassroots. Again, I do believe that if we have the feeling or our students have the feeling of being listened to and being able to be who they are, that's where the growth is going to happen. That's where when we talk about failures, which we'll learn a little bit later from Alicia is, you know, these kids are failing, but they haven't had the ability to learn about the failures and how to grow from them. So taking off that armor and allowing themselves to free from that is where that failure and then leading to growth will occur. Yeah, no doubt at all. I think that growth and progress is really the important parts here. And, you know, and I think that's the way we are as all humans, you know, I'm, I think you would consider yourself a work in progress. I know I certainly consider myself a work in progress. And as Einstein said, when you stop learning, you start dying. And I certainly got plenty of life to live as you do as well. You started your year with this health lesson on vulnerability. How long does it take? How do the kids grow? You, you talk about defining vulnerability. I know one of the questions I looked at in your presentation says, what should I be afraid of today? And do I feel vulnerable so far in my school day? Now, that's a big, deep question for kids that have never really thought about being vulnerable before. How long does it take before before they feel good about answering that question in your classroom? Because, you know, the first day they don't know anybody. We don't know you. They don't know each other. How long does that take? Well, it actually does take a while. The, the piece about the vulnerability when I started that unit, the kids are so attuned into what their past history of health education. And one piece that they were like, Lawler, why are we learning about this? What about nutrition and fitness and drugs and alcohol? That this was something actually very unique to them. And then that triggered something in me. I was like, wait a second, I need to hold on to this a little bit longer. Now, please understand, I do this with 12th graders. I would absolutely love to do this with a much younger class because now I think they're going into their college experience or trade experience or being you know someone that wants to be a stay home person with their family any any journey that they want to take for their future I just feel like I might be capturing it not too late but I think we could have grown through it if we had started a little bit more so your question is actually something I'm still learning about so I would say next year when I do this unit, I'm going to have to give it a little bit more time. This vulnerability and empathy and scarcity culture really comes in right at our personality unit that we do here at Lower Moreland. So we really start out with learning about yourself. You have to obviously love yourself before you can make a difference in someone else's life. So we start there. And then we branch into a lot of the topics that we're discussing now. So today we're looking at we're in the second week of October and school started first week of September and we're still in that unit growing through it together. Now we're moving into other units through that, but we're always going to infuse the topics that we've learned. 
so that it stays in their vocabulary, it stays in their emotion when they come in and so forth, so that the entire class feels and takes what we learned in that lesson throughout the school year. Just out of the blue, do you feel like that this is creating a good classroom culture, maybe differently than previous years when you hadn't done this type of unit to start the year? I have seen since the start of this unit, you know, Todd, when you're looking at a classroom and you're deeply invested in a lesson that you're doing and you see the people go, aha, or they look at you with a different look, the feeling of being engaged is much greater. I think because it might be new and I think it is triggering something inside of them to kind of say, aha, wait, this makes sense. And I truly believe this learning is going to help them when they leave and then they move into another avenue. I also see when we're engaged in conversation that they are definitely more apt to be good listeners and their responses have changed. Instead of saying something negative, they can say, you listen, you know, I don't believe the same. Can you hear me out? Or, hey, have you ever thought about this way of thinking? So it does create a different way of communication that is key, I believe, once you get out of uh, the Lower Moreland world and into uh, the next journey. So as you're talking about this, Deb, with your kids and you're learning about vulnerability, leads me to a thing that we're going to talk about later with Alicia. And we're going to talk about failure and kids learning to fail. And I've been thinking about this since I heard Alicia speak this summer at ISTE. And she talked about kids talking about failure walls and kids talking about learning to fail. And I was thinking of my own experience and and kids struggle with that failure. I mean, I've had conversations with kids who have 95s or better in my class. And they're like, Mr. Bedard, can I get 100? What can I do to get 100? And, and, and I always talk to them about chasing this fallacy of perfection and 95 is good enough and never want to be good enough. But at the same time, sometimes 95 is okay because the world's not perfect. Are you, are you leading the, with this vulnerability conversation that you're having with kids? Are you leading into discussions about failure and maybe how to fail? Because then, you know, thinking back to my own teenage years and maybe even yourself, did we really know how to fail and did we really know how to deal with life's failures? I think Actually, I thought about failure for years and now infusing vulnerability and the empathy and the scarcity culture into my lessons, it fits more natural because when you would say to the kids, you know, hey, it is okay to fail. And my thing is the sun is going to rise tomorrow. We will do this together. The big thing is what are we walking away with? What lessons are you now moving forward with that maybe the same failure won't occur? And hey, maybe it will. And it might take two times to be able to get through this. But I do believe we set up our students for failure as adults. Let's give an example. We're saying to them, you know, and I totally agree, Todd, 95, I would have been very happy as a, with a 95 as a student in, the, in my history as, as a teenager. But, you know, we look at these colleges and their expectations. And then we look at, well, how do you get to the level that their parents want them to achieve? And that truly is the stress and there's no room for failure in their eyes. And so I do believe that, yeah, I'm teaching my students that failing is okay. And I, we teach that in health and phys ed because I believe they're both arenas that are perfect for that. But on the other end, I'm going, oh, I might be not really giving them good guidance because they're going, I don't understand, Lawler. I have to get these grades to get into the college but yet you're telling me it's okay to walk away with a B and that's fine. I think the 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 lesson is you can get into colleges without having an A in every class. And I'm not sure we do a great job at that as educators. Right. So, and, and you know, um, 
parents want the best for their children. And sometimes they think the best is working hard and doing academic achievements every moment of the day. And I think that a contradiction of how we, we have this dialogue with our students. And I don't know what the resolve is. And I've learned to define it a little better, um, stating that I I absolutely feel why you need to achieve that. So I'm in a tough place there of really defining or, or supporting our students, I guess I should say. Right. So that's a learning curve for me as well. And I would take any help from any educator to try to smooth that that road out for them. Right. It is it is a learning curve because you do want to support them to their goals. And I think, you know, sometimes I think kids come in with this idea of what success is. And some of it is related to the parents that they have. And I'm not saying that as a criticism to parents, but most of the parents of high school kids are in their late 30s to 40s, somewhere in that range, which means they grew up in the era of go to college, get a degree, or go to the assembly line and go to work. And if you go to work, you're going to work for the person with the college degree. So college means success. And I think in 2019, we're starting to see that isn't necessarily the definition of success. I mean, to go to a four-year college at $30,000 a year to get a degree in philosophy, not to not to poo-poo that degree at all, but tell me where the job that you're going to get with your $30,000 a year education that's going to pay that back with a philosophy degree. And, and so those things, I think sometimes kids come in with this idea like, okay, high school, then I got to go to college. Then after mm-hmm. college, I got to find a spouse and then I got to have kids and then I got to have my career and have a white picket fence. And there's this definition of success. And so I wonder if that plays into any of this stuff too, with the pressures that the kids feel. What do you think? Oh, I totally agree with everything you're stating. Again, when we bring back the social media part, people put on social media the things that are occurring in their life and everybody wants to catch up to that. Vacations and the clothing. And I, I, as in my 50s, I'm thinking, how would I have walked in those shoes? How would I have been able to go through my daily life with that extra stressor? Um, I do know that professionals who have been in education for a little bit, I don't know if they really reflect on that. They might, and I don't want to use the word judgment, but they might be, come on now. I don't understand what the stress is. But if you really put yourself back to the normal stressors of a um, student going through education and then adding the social media piece, Uh, I give the students credit for how strong they are. I give them credit for how thick-skinned they are, because as we know, we're not really going to cover bullying or anything, I would assume, but you know, that's another whole component to that stressor. So you're really trying to be academically achieving those uh, accolades that you would like to do, trying to keep up with your social life, your family life. Extracurriculars are filling their afternoons, and then they have this, you know, pressure of their college at the end of this journey in, in high school, and I can't imagine. I, and I really try to support them in that. I always tell my kids, you'll never hear me say ever, well, when I was your age, because to me, that's just, that's just the wrong way to go because at no time is one year the same as another year. And the stressors will always be different. And I am never going to compare myself to students today. I'm going to just say on this podcast, I don't know if I ever really want to go through that to tell you the truth. Uh, because of the extra stressors that you would have. Right, no doubt. And, and, you know, even to your point with the social media and the pressures too, 
There's so many stories of kids. I mean, Tom Murray, who's going to be speaking at our conference this year, has a hashtag called Kids Today. And if any of you have a Facebook account out there, I highly recommend checking it out. He's daily publishing what kids are doing with social media to make a difference in the world. And, you know, to talk about the when I was your age scenario a little bit with you, Deb, you know, when we were that age, we didn't have the platform or the access to make changes in the world the way these kids do. And there's some like the one, the girl that discovered the Flint water crisis was a 12 year old or 13 year old something like that. My facts are probably a little bit wrong, but she was definitely a school-age kid. So there's a kid who's making a difference in the world with social media, with the platforms that they have in their pockets. So so there is a lot of good to it as well. And, and I guess our job as adults and educators too would be to guide them through this and teach them, teach them how to handle things. Yeah, good point. You're right. Well, Deb, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you about what you're doing with your kids in Lower Moreland and like I said, folks, Deb is one of my favorite educators and favorite people, and she's making a difference in this world, one kid at a time in her section of the woods. And I highly recommend looking her up and chatting with her about this stuff because she's, we could do three or four podcasts in a row talking with Deb about the different things and the way to help kids. And uh, we're going to talk to Alicia Duell, who was the keynote speaker at ISTE this summer in Philadelphia in 2019 about her failures and about how she thinks that kids should learn to fail and some of the things that she's seen. And that's going to be a fantastic interview coming up. Deb co-hosts that one with me as well. And Deb, thanks for doing this segment with me. I really appreciate it. Todd, thank you. I appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, on the Teachers Leaders podcast today, I have a special guest with us. We have Alicia Duell, Director of Technology and Information Services, Community Consolidated School District 21 in Wheeling, Illinois. That's quite the mouthful. Thanks for being with us today, Alicia. <laughs> thanks so much for having me. You have to have an abbreviation for that school. I'm sure it's not, you don't walk around saying that long thing every time, right? No, it's just CCSD21. Yeah, CCSD21. All right, let's go That's with right. that the rest of the day. Or just District 21, either. District 21. All right, sounds good. So, And also with me today, co-hosting is Deb Lawler, one of my heroes in education. She's an amazing human being, an amazing teacher, an amazing coach, and she's the department leader at Lower Moreland School District. Um, Alicia, I saw you speak this summer at the ISTE conference in Philadelphia, and I was really inspired inspired by your talk on failure, partially because I've been there myself, not the way you have, but my own. And also because I spent the last six months studying the work of Brene Brown. And when, when you started to talk, what really resonated with me was just that I could tell that you've also studied that work and, and have been down that road before. And it's something that we've all been through. Failure is kind of taboo to talk about, especially as, as a man. I mean, I, failure is a really hard thing to talk about because it, it in, in a way, society stereotypes us to be less masculine if we fail. But it's also important as an educator too, if you ask an educator to talk about failure, I think it's I think it's a really hard thing to do. So before we dig into um, failure, can you tell us a little bit about how you're asked and then chosen to speak at ISTE? Because it must have been an incredible honor and super cool. Yes, it was absolutely incredible. Um, something I never even dreamed of being a possibility for me. ISTE came out last winter, maybe with a partnership with TED. And so they had this new class that was free for ISTE members. And so basically Ted provided this app, kind of a platform, and it was a course for teachers. It was called the Ted Masterclass. And the idea was you go through it and there's maybe seven or eight modules of about 14 or 15 minutes each. And in each module, the head of Ted basically talked about a different element of a successful Ted talk. And they, he would show you clips and different people doing, you know, make, exemplifying these different qualities. 
And as you were going through the course, the idea was you were developing your own TED Talk. And so you learned things like what's a through line, what makes a good TED Talk, like what should you kind of willow out, what should you really hone in on. And so the, the big focus was it needs to be really a talk that only you can give. So it's not just a motivational speech. It's more like you telling your story and your experience. And so, I, you know, for me, I had this pretty monumental experience in my life that I knew was probably a good, good thing for a TED style talk. So um, I created a TED talk and I recorded it. So you, if you recorded it and finished it by a certain date, you could submit the video and then they would go through all of the submissions and they would choose a maybe two for ISTE to be on the main stage. That wasn't even in my mind. I had finished the course. I had created this TED Talk and I thought, that's kind of cool. Maybe I'll, I'll do this. I'll record it. I'll submit it. And then maybe I could do it at a conference somewhere, you know. And so I did it. I recorded it. And it was pretty easy to do because as far as I knew, it was just going to be viewed by a few anonymous ISTE and TED people that I would never even meet. So I told my whole story on video. And then, I don't know, a month or two Two months later, maybe, I got an email from Ted saying, we have chosen you to present on the main stage. Wow. So it was pretty incredible. That is super cool. That is super. So you've kind of, you kind of ended up like Brene Brown in a way. She thought like 500 people might yeah. see her TED talk and <laughs> yeah. you know, a week later, she's got 3 million views. So yeah, <laughs> that's pretty, pretty cool. much. It's an interesting pathway, the parallel path. Alicia, so... I actually was wondering how the TED Talk experience uh, transpired and your definition really leads me into a question regarding TED Talk and in education as teachers. So for teaching inspiration, I listen to TED Talks to give me different viewpoints or to get my teacher motor running. It gives me a jolt of energy that absolutely makes my delivery more engaging. So with that said, do you think with your experiences and how I use it, do you think teachers should include watching TED Talks in their own teacher homework in preparation for lessons? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think it's good if you can rely on maybe curated lists. I did a little Googling and I, I put one in the, in the show notes. Um, it's just a bit.ly forward slash NEA TED Talks. So it's like 10 TED Talks that the NEA put together as, as being ones that were suggested for teachers. And I would also say TED has a TED radio hour, I think. And so I don't really have a ton of time to watch videos, but I have a commute. So I listen to a lot of podcasts. And so if that's you, you can also listen to TED kind of in the podcast version. So that could be another alternative. That's awesome. Do you think that would also be great for students for that population? Yeah, for sure. I think if, again, if you can curate some that especially res might resonate with your students, and I know TED even has a program where they help TED after school clubs and where kids can create their own TED Talks. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to definitely run with that. Thank you. So Alicia, in your talk at ISTE, you talked about telling your story about a big failure in life and what would be considered a nightmare for most working professionals. Can you talk a little bit about kind of what led up to that and where you went with it? Because it was, it was a fascinating speech for me to listen to and to, to see you spin it so positively was, was an inspiration. Thank you. Yeah, it was pretty much the worst thing that had ever happened to me, but it came about after the best thing that had almost ever happened to me. And that was getting my first administrator job 
job after I was a high school librarian for a long time, really transitioned into technology at a time when cloud computing was coming about. So I just really got into it. And I always dreamed of being in administration with technology. So I got my first admin job. I was the head technology director for a school district and it was fantastic and exciting. And I thought I'd made it. You know, this is it. My career is just on this absolute upward trajectory. And uh, there was nothing that I, I never even considered that anything bad could happen because I didn't think stuff could happen. Like I thought you had to be bad in order for bad stuff to happen. It just had never occurred to me that anything could happen. So it was in the second year of this job and I got a, an email over the winter break saying, I'd like to meet with you for my superintendent after winter break. And I thought, fabulous, because the kind of difficult thing in that position was I had never had a, an evaluation. I never had really a performance discussion at all, which I really value those kinds of discussions because it gives you great feedback and a kind of a direction to go. But we hadn't had that. And so I thought that's what this was. And so I, I walked down to that meeting and I uh, had my printout of these uh, accomplishments that my team and myself had completed in the last year and a half and uh, my goals, my upcoming goals. And I was really excited to have this conversation. And so I walked in and I you know, gave him a copy of each of those documents and I had a copy and we sat down and he just, I don't want to beat around the bush. It's not working out. You're not a good fit and I'm not renewing your contract. And I was completely stunned. I described in my talk how I really had this outer body experience where like my whole body went numb and I didn't say a word. Like I literally was speechless. And uh, he continued to talk and said things like, I'm better suited to middle management and I should aim lower if I wanted to progress in my career. And that maybe I should go back to the library and not be in technology. And, and all of these things that just were like the worst things I could imagine anyone saying to me. And it, it just was a really terrible, terrible experience. And that was it. And so I left that office being absolutely crushed. And then the, the thing was I had to go back there until the end of June. And so I was there from January to June, going there every day, knowing that this had happened. And, and uh, I had to just still still go into work that day, every day. And I was grateful to have the job, you know, of course, until several months later. But it really did a number on my confidence and my belief in my own ability as a leader and as, as an educator. And the, I think the way that he really called into question my abilities and my, my worth as a professional, it was really, really difficult. So that's what happened it seemed almost hurtful some of the things he was saying like Amy yeah Miller it was you did mm -hmm. for little management that just seems yeah it seems like something you'd say to somebody you didn't like yet you had to work with him for the next six months I mean right did he improve his vernacular at all or was did you just avoid him or yeah I think it was a lot of avoidance definitely and you know after uh, maybe a couple months after that happened he started to strip away my responsibilities so I stopped attending meetings like the cabinet meetings and I basically was relegated to to doing nothing it was a really difficult time and wow. you know different of my colleagues reacted in different ways and you know there were a couple that were absolutely kind and supportive and but there were a few that I think were more trying to just make sure they were okay and aligning themselves with him. And so they kind of treated me the same way. So, you know, I, I, it, I really, really, really learned a lot in that experience about how I want to make sure I always treat people no matter what's going on, because what meant the most to me was people who treated me still with dignity and with respect. And because that's, that's always a possibility that you can do that for somebody.
Well, before Deb jumps in with, with her next segment, to be honest with you, it's, it's such an inspiration to listen to you tell that story and spin it so positively. Like you're just, it, it's almost the classic, like you were given lemons and you're making lemonade and, and you know, to, to go through that must've been an incredibly difficult time, but man, for you to just turn it around the way you did and to do what you've done and succeed as you have. I mean, I have goosebumps right now just listening to you talk. So I'll let Deb keep it going. I as well, Lisha, am inspired by the growth and what failure has has changed your life. Um, and as you mentioned, for the better with these new doors that have opened. In your talk, you mentioned doing a flip grid of failures of people that you know were famous people and you have them there up in on stage on that projector. And the one that really resonated was Nick Foles. And as we all know, Nick Foles did a post-Super Bowl victory speech and he quotes, if something is going on in your life and you're struggling, embrace it. At that moment in his life, he's celebrating greatness, but yet he reflects on the failures of being the instrumental piece of the success, just as you just said moments ago. And in your speech, that means to me, I should ask the question, is that when the learning actually takes place, that when you're at the top of what you've really worked for and, and strive for, and is it due to the failures, is it the time that you get to speak about it? Do you feel as that is when the failures have really shown the improvement in or the changes in your life? Yeah, I think so. And that's what really got me too about the Nick Foles speech, because this was right after they won the Super Bowl. And you would have expected him to just be going on about how successful they were and like what, I don't watch football, but like what plays they made that got them there and all of that stuff. And so for him to immediately talk about the failures and how this came on the heels of all this failure, and that was just so incredible because it's such an inspiring message. And I think it really speaks to this idea that I talk about in my speech, kind of like as the big through line, which is that failure is part of the inevitable shared human experience. And you might only see somebody's successes, but you don't see all of the times that they failed. And so I think that's why I wanted to give this talk from my perspective, because I feel like you hear a lot of very successful celebrities talk about failure, J.K. Rowling's, Elizabeth Gilbert, all kinds of people talking about their failures, but that's easy. It's almost easy for them because they're so successful. I feel like you don't hear just normal, random, average people like me, who's still in a career trying to be successful, talking about it. That seems a little bit riskier because I haven't made it, quote unquote. So I think that's what we really need to do. And then definitely when you're working through failure, I think for me, I was desperate to try to learn from it and desperate to try to make some meaning of it. So I did a ton of reading and I include, I have a bit.ly at the end that I also put in the show notes that has a my basically my bibliography of all of my books and articles and stuff that I referred to. And so I think I learned about reframing failure and how important that can be. And also about trying to find a third path. Like what if this didn't work out? Like what is a different thing I could do? So I think there's these different things you can do to help yourself to learn and grow and to become even better and stronger than before. And so I think it's easy for me to talk about this now. It's been two and a half years since that happened. So it's not like so raw. But when it first happened, it felt like my life was over. It was awful. And so now it's been two and a half years and I've I definitely seen the light and I can see how I grew and, and all of that. And I can try to help other people. But when you're in it, it's, it's really tough and you need other people to kind of be there and you kind of find the way. 
You know, just off the top of my head and just listening to your answer, do you think that in the age of social media where where we just have our social masks on all the time and we only give you the picture that we want, that failure is harder for people now than maybe it was in the pre-social media era? You know, you see so many people that my relationship's perfect, my children are perfect, and, and I don't know about you, but I'm certainly not the perfect husband and the perfect father, but try my best every day. So do you think that that the social media world has changed the failure piece? Yes, I think absolutely. I mean, those examples you just gave, like Facebook and Instagram, perfect, of course. But I think also on Twitter, because that's a space a lot of educators are in, myself included, you've got your Twitter edu celebrities, Mm -hmm. who are these people who have their own hashtags, and they have their own brand, and they're kind of lauded constantly as being these uber educators. And don't get me wrong, they're, they're fantastic. They do some amazing things. But at the same time, I think what would be super powerful is if they started sharing some of the things that, that didn't work out for them, jobs they didn't get, jobs they got fired from, articles or conference proposals that didn't get accepted. I think a question is always, well, how can we really teach this? I just think it starts with just share, just tell people about how you yourself struggled. And it doesn't have to be so dramatic like me, but just little things. And in my talk, I talk about this um, physicist from Stanford, Princeton, I forget, but he created this um, CV of, of rejection. And it's his resume of all the, all the conference proposals and jobs he got rejected from. And yet here he is, the super successful professional college professor that you probably look at and think, oh, he's just had everything handed to him. No, I mean, everybody has failures and mistakes and things they get rejected from. And if we can just start sharing those with people, it just, I think, makes everything a, little, a lot less scary. Oh, yeah. I mean, Seth Godin just comes to mind. He's, I'm a big fan of Seth Godin, and he, he talks about in some of his interviews, he, he did an interview with Tom Bilyeu, and he talked about, I, have eight, I had 800 book rejections, and, and I forget the exact words in the story, but he said, I wanted to send a few more out to see if I could hit like magic <laughs> number just to say I had it. And then I started to go, wait a minute, because he got an offer somewhere to come in and do something. And he's like, well, if I take that, then I'll stop getting these rejection letters. And I sort of, that's sort of become a collection now, too. So... That's great. Yeah. Sort of a sickness to that in a way, it sounds like in a way. <laughs> but in your in your talk, you talked about Alex Rubenstein and, and the mural of mistakes and then University of Pennsylvania's wall of rejection. And, and that really struck me because that's something I hadn't thought about. What is your perspective on how that helps people? Because I mean, and I know it would take a tremendous amount of courage. I'm pretty open with sharing, but it would take a tremendous amount of courage to put that on a wall and just leave it there for people to see and even possibly even be considered embarrassing. So how how does that how do you see that helping people and what would you say to somebody who thinks it might be embarrassing to put up so the alex rubenstein mural of mistakes that is that my husband is a teacher at a northern very prominent northern suburban in chicago high school and that's his school so he took that picture and oh. so it's like this real actual connection from my own life and the thing though to note about that and the upenn those were all anonymous. So I think you're right. I think being able to really share with your name attached, your face attached, your failures, that can take some time. That takes some getting used to, to 
being open and being used to this whole idea of sharing failures. But a really easy entry point is if you have some place like this wall, like the note cards on UPenn's wall of rejection. None of their names were on it, but so it's really not about you having a spotlight on you and your specific rejection. It's more like adding to this collective, well, collection of all of these different rejections and failures and mistakes. And so in both of those notably are at very high performing places of educational institutions. And so if you're just somebody from there and you look and you see this sea of other people like your peers who have had these things happen to them, you might not know who they are, but to see all the different stuff, I think that in itself is powerful, even if their names aren't attached. It almost makes failure human then. Is, is, yeah. It humanizes it is the point. So. Right. Elise, could you tell us as an educator, if you were speaking to me, how could I help my students today or tomorrow in teaching them that failure is just a part of everyday life and the successes that come from it are really based on the foundation of the failure, the learning and the experiences that we go through, um, learning from each other's failures. And so you mentioned in your goal that you want to partner with classroom teachers and work with administration to maybe get some professional development in school buildings. How do you see that look? How do you see that to be believed or valued by schools to start something like that? That's the tough part. I think, though, that you can start as a classroom teacher, as a building principal, no matter what your role is, by just talking about your own mistakes and failures. That, I think, is extremely powerful, and you have control over that, and you can share. Brene Brown talks about this in her book, about what she shares, and she talks about not floodlighting people, like telling people something that's so personal or so intense that they feel like they've got floodlights shined into their eyes. You talk about something that you're not like emotionally still like healing from. It's something small. It's like some task that you failed back in college or, you know, different things. I was in line in Philadelphia at the public market getting some dinner and a woman noticed my speaker badge and she asked what I was speaking about. And I told her, and she, she's a chemistry teacher. And she said, first day of class, she always tells the kids, when I was your age, I went to this school and I took this class and I failed it. And now I'm teaching it. Mm. So just like little things like that to show kids that you as teachers and administrators and administrators telling their staff, this is normal. This happens to everyone. And just because you fail now or have a mistake now, you can still grow on, go on to have a happy, successful life. So I think that's like the number one thing you can do. I think you can also introduce some brain science. There's a lot of really good layperson accessible brain science about what failure does to the brain and how it actually strengthens the, the brain fibers. And Joe Bowler, who does, who's a Stanford math person, she has a lot of really great little videos and things that are kind of aimed at kids about how mistakes actually grow your brain and make oh. it stronger. Wonderful. Okay. Yeah, yeah Joe Bowler's book is called Math Mindset, and it's phenomenal. One of my sons struggles with math, and we, and we have read that book, and, and, and it was like it turned his life around in terms of his math because he was largely a math phobe. So that is a phenomenal book, and thank you for recommending that. She's an amazing, Great. amazing person. What jumped at me with working on failure with kids was the idea that kids grade chase now. I don't, I don't know how much you're in the classroom now, Alicia, with your new position and whatnot, but you know, I walk in every day and 
have conversations with kids who have a 95 or better in my class and they're like, what can I do extra credit to get a hundred? What do I need to do? And, and I always have this conversation with them. I said, you know, you're chasing a fallacy because there's not perfection in the world. Like there is no such thing. So if you do your best, that's all that we can do and, and so on. So I, I don't know if that's a problem at your school, but do you think that's something we need to address in terms of teaching them how to fail? because they feel like failures at 95 out of 100. Which, yeah. yeah, I think that is such a good point, um, especially at schools that are kind of high performing. So one of the, the things I found in my research was that there are several Ivy League schools that were noticing a phenomenon where students, and they coined the term failure deprived. So they were coming to them and they, they were all extremely successful and they really hadn't had experiences of failure. And of course, failure for them was defined as something less than a 95 probably. And so some of these different universities have done some really cool public awareness campaigns. I think it was at Smith where they did like the B awareness campaign. And it was something like just trying to get the word out that 70% of Smith students got a B as an average or something. So just trying to kind of shake this, like you said, a, a fallacy of a belief that, that like a 95 is what most people should get. But really just to try to educate people about what are more like normal grade averages. And then also my husband just came home the other day and told me again at this very high performing school that their data person put together something really for parents, but also for students that showed all of these universities that their kids were getting into and all of the kind of average grades that kids were getting in different classes. And it showed that kids were still getting into some of these bigger schools, but they didn't they didn't have like the straight A grades. They had a real range of grades. And so I think anything you can do to kind of show people like more accurate reflections of what's really going on and what success can look like and what goes into success, I think can really do a lot to help. But when you bring up the parent piece with the data that was shown, because as you were, Todd was asking the question about the students with, hey, I have a 95, that's not good enough, I feel like I'm failing. Is that really the intrinsic feeling they're having or is that the extrinsic push from the parents mm -hmm. that provide that angst. So yeah. is it really the students feel like they're failing or do they feel like they're failing the parent in, in that type of situation, right. which I think might be that stressor that, that might be causing some of that concern for the students? Yeah. And actually, I was talking to somebody who, I think it maybe it was a mentor that I have who showed me a video of um, it was a school district, maybe a real successful school district out on the East Coast, and they were feeling like their parents were putting so much pressure on the kids in kind of like this really unhealthy way. And so they made this staff video to share with parents and all these staff members shared their stories of failure, but it was funny. It was like set to music and it was all these different teachers saying, when I was 17, I did this or, you know, different things throughout their career. And they put it together and it was for a parent audience showing like we're really successful adults and we had all of these mistakes and, and failures in our life. So, you know, there's lots of, I think, creative ways you can address parent I think that's too. a really fun way that that information could be received. Mm -hmm. That's great. You know, and sometimes the hard part of communicating with parents too about the new things and different things that you're doing in school sometimes has to do with the fact that everyone went to school. So our parents are maybe in their 30s or 40s, meaning they went to school in the 80s and 90s and school was very much compliance-based, fully industrial age model back then. So, right. 
So Alicia, you've learned a lot about failure through your own experiences and done a lot of research and really, I can tell you've dug into this quite a bit. How are you a different leader now today than you were before you went through your failure? I think I'm a lot more humble. I really think that as I was, my career was taking off and I was kind of rising higher and higher and and doing a lot more things and then finally getting to this pinnacle of that job that I had when everything happened to me. And I really thought it was just because I was great. I, I really and truly didn't ever think that stuff can happen to anybody. And and I also thought if if I heard of something happening to someone, especially professionally, I just assumed it was their fault, that they just couldn't cut it, they weren't good enough or whatever. And so I think I had this kind of arrogant perspective, like everything I got is because I was just great. And then when that happened to me, I saw, oh, like really bad stuff can happen. And it's not always because someone just wasn't good enough. There's like lots of outside factors. And also, even though maybe it is because of something you did, like the feeling is so bad. And so I think I became a lot more humble and a lot more empathetic. So anytime if I see somebody really struggling, even if it's someone that I kind of do have an issue with for whatever reason, I still can access this empathetic part of me because I know what it means to struggle and I know how it feels to have some professional issues. And so I, I, I can, I think, be a lot more empathetic and try to relate to people just on a human level instead of just looking and judging from like a professional level. I just want to say thank you. In my classroom, we're working about being vulnerable and showing empathy. And you've mentioned both of those. So kudos to you of the strides that you made and probably more so what you're teaching others. So. I want thank to thank you very much for that. I'll be using that in my classroom. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Alicia, this is this has been an honor to speak with you today and and I'm so thankful that you were willing to do this and have this conversation with us today. Um, I think it's an important topic. I agree with you. We need to share this with teachers and students and administrators across the country, and, and hopefully they'll hear this too. And uh, I, I'm, again, so thankful and, and honored to have spoken with you today and fantastic job at ISTE too. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the invitation. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Teachers as Leaders. I'm so thankful that Alicia Duell and Deb Lawler spent a little bit of time talking to me about vulnerability and about failure and how they overcame it. This topic became so important as I was listening and editing this program that I felt the need to create a series out of this. So this is now episode one of the series. The next episode we're going to do, I'm going to interview some high school kids and talk to them about their impressions of failure, about how they overcome failure, and do they even understand failure. So that's the next episode that's coming up here in the next few weeks. And then the third and final episode of this series will be in the elementary school where we'll visit our explorations teacher at Monroe Elementary School in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. And they're actually teaching failure in fourth and fifth grade and how to overcome it. So that'll be an exciting one as well. We'll have the principal on as well as the two explorations teachers and possibly some students as well. So we're thankful that you're listening to our podcast. Once again, so thankful for Deb Lawler and Alicia Duell. I could have talked to them for an hour and really had a long podcast, but we decided to keep it short for your listening pleasure. And I thank you so much for enjoying and listening to Teachers as Leaders. As always, if you have any feedback, please don't be afraid to hit me up in the flip grid that is in the show notes, as well as an email, tbedard2 at gmail.com, or you can tweet me at tb2boys. Thanks again for listening to Teachers as Leaders. Mm-hmm.